You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome to Star Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich. What if Lee had won at Gettysburg? What if Grant had been defeated in the Overland Campaign of 1864? What if George McClellan had been elected president instead of Abraham Lincoln in the election of that year? Our guest today knows the answers to these and other fascinating what-if questions, and the answers may surprise you. Join us for a counterfactual conversation with Richard P. McMurray on Civil War Talk Radio. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio, coming to you as is done every week from my office in Greenville, North Carolina, on the campus of East Carolina University, but as always, not representing the university's views on the Civil War or any other subject. Uh, let's see. We're hearing some interesting sounds in the background, but I'm Jerry. Sure. Can, Jerry, can you hear me? I can hear you. I, I was barely hearing what you were saying. You're uh, all right now. Okay. Um, we're hearing there the voice of Richard McMurray, our guest today on Civil War Talk Radio. So, Richard, you can hear me now. Yes, I can. Excellent. Welcome. Glad to have you here today. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. This is our uh, first show of 2005. If you're listening, no, 2006. If you're listening on the archives, as most people do, uh, this is uh, starting a, uh, another calendar year. I am particularly happy to have our guest today, Richard McMurray. Uh, Richard and I last worked together, I think, on the Delta Queen. Is that right? That is right. Wonderful cruise. And that was a wonderful cruise. I recommend to all our listeners, if you can find someone to pay your way to go on a <laughs> fabulous cruise, uh, don't miss the opportunity. I know I don't. Uh, but it was a, a great experience and made all the better by listening to Richard's absolutely fascinating talks. 
Richard, also I'd send, bring you greetings from David Long here at the uh, East Carolina History Department. Well, thank you. Please give him my felicitations. I will certainly do that. Now, in our opening, I mentioned that you are one of the people who knows the answers to some very interesting uh, what-if questions. I discovered this by reading the introduction to your recent book on the Fourth Battle of Winchester toward a new Civil War paradigm. And you say in the introduction there that of all the what-if questions you've been asked over the years, and those of us who go to Civil War roundtables know that's a popular question style, uh, one that, that you were quite certain knew the answer to was what if at Perryville Braxton Bragg had a nuclear weapon? Well, I suggested there that if Bragg had such a weapon, he might have been able to win the battle. But considering that he was Braxton Bragg, he might have used it to vaporize his own army by accident, which I guess would have been the ultimate example of friendly fire in the Civil War. So that might have just uh, wrapped up things earlier. Um, Most of the what-if questions that that one gets at a roundtable gathering are not quite as frivolous as that one. Uh, one that does come up often, which you also answered in that uh, book, is what would have happened had Lee won the Battle of Gettysburg? Well, I suggested there that if he had won the battle as the battle was fought, that is, to have won it on July 3rd with Pickett's charge, or as it's called in North Carolina, the Pettigrew, what's-his-name charge, <laughs> that it would have made no difference in the outcome because Lee's army would have taken such a beating and such suffered such heavy casualties and be threatened with shortages of supplies, particularly artillery ammunition, that he would have had to retreat anyway. And it would have been like the Battle of Antietam, which was a Confederate victory on the battlefield, but after which the Confederates had to fall back into Virginia simply because they didn't have the strength to go on. And I think it would have been that way with Gettysburg as it was fought. So rather than a turning point to the war uh, that could have gone the other way, uh, it, the battlefield result really didn't make much of a difference. I don't think the Battle of Gettysburg has any particular significance beyond the campaign of which it was a part. The, the, there are a number of other battles, anything from Mill Springs to Fort Donelson to Vicksburg, that I think are far, far more important than, than Gettysburg. I suggest in that book that Gettysburg had three results that determined the outcome of the Gettysburg campaign. It determined the site of the Gettysburg Address, although that could have been given on any other battlefield where the Union troops had won a victory, and it created the tourist business in Adams County, Pennsylvania. But beyond that, I have never been able to discern any concrete result that the battle had. Most of the people who talk about Gettysburg as being important or decisive or the high watermark or the turning point will say if such and such had happened, then Gettysburg would have been crucial or important or decisive. And I have no quarrel with that. I mean, if rhinoceroses had wings, they might be able to fly. If the Confederates had won the Battle of Lookout Mountain, then they might have been able to do something But when you get into that if, 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 it it just becomes impossible to talk about it very long before you just go off the deep end and the things that we can never know. And I think Gettysburg is that way. If you look at the battle itself, what it did, what it accomplished, what it meant, 
it did not accomplish or mean very much. And that's the point I would stress. Now, when you talk about these extended what-ifs, this book of yours, The Fourth Battle of Winchester, is itself uh, an extended counterfactual. The people listening to this show who are very knowledgeable about the Civil War, if they haven't already read your book, are eagerly racing to their uh, keyboards to type in uh, what a mistake we are making. There was no Fourth Battle of Winchester. Oh, let's but, of course, that, rush that's the to, point. Let's hope they'll rush to their bookstores and buy copies of the book so they can find out about it. That's right. There's no way they'll find out unless they buy the book, unless you're willing to tell <laughs> us right now. What, what, what was the Fourth Battle of Winchester? As well, you what, what, I, what I did in that book, Jerry, is to use roughly the first, oh, 40% or so of the book to set up a scenario that traces out a counterfactual history of events in Virginia in 1864 in which everything happens as it did happen up until the Battle of Cedar Creek in which the Confederates win a great victory, following it up by another victory at a hypothetical Fourth Battle of Winchester. And then their army marches to Richmond. They defeat Grant's army at Richmond. And by the end of the year, the Army of Northern Virginia is back in its camps on the Rappahannock, where it had been when the year 1864 began. What happens then? What I suggested was that Sherman's army marches into Richmond from the south, and the Confederates surrender. And I use that, which, as I said, is roughly the first two-fifths of the book, as a background against which then to answer some very real historical questions, like why did the Confederacy lose? What were the important battles in the war? What was Robert E. Lee's strategy and his role in Confederate history and that sort of thing? So you're, you're hypothetical, then, with... The, the Confederates winning in the East in 1864, driving Grant's army back to where it had started the campaign, back to where the Union Army was in 62 and 63, your, your hypothetical posits that that would have made essentially no difference, that the war was determined in the West. Right. Now, that, that's a plausible case. Why, why does anyone even need to argue that? Is it obvious that the war is determined in the West? Well, I think it is if you look at it, but I also believe that over most of the past 140 years, particularly for the first 100 or 115 or 20 years after the war, very few people bothered to look at the West. Most of them focused on what went on in Virginia and Maryland and Pennsylvania. And there's a whole slew of reasons for that, more attractive people, closer to population centers, both governments situated only about 100 miles apart in Virginia, many things that would draw people's attention to the war in Virginia. You know, we had just a real avalanche of writing on the Civil War in Virginia, and it was not until roughly 80 years after the war, 75 or 80 years after the war, that there was even a history of the Army of Tennessee, the main Confederate army in the West. So it's been a long time when people focused on the war in Virginia and did not look at the war elsewhere. And I think to, to some extent that's still true. And what I was trying to do with the Fourth Battle of Winchester was to redirect people's attention out of Virginia and to what was going on in Tennessee and 
Kentucky and Mississippi and, and Georgia. I'm not trying to say the war in Virginia was not important. It was. Uh, Gary Gallagher at the University of Virginia has begun to ask the question, why did the Confederacy or how did the Confederacy hold out for as long as it did, considering its inferiority to the federal government? And he suggests, and I think he's right on this, that the reason the Confederacy lasted as long as it did was Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. But if you want to ask the more traditional question, why did the Confederates lose in the end, then I believe the answer is in Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Georgia. And I, what I'm suggesting is a, is a shift of emphasis. Now, this your your book, Two Great Rebel Armies, was published in the early 90s, I believe? Uh, late 80s. Late yeah. 80s. And that was uh, one of the influential books in starting the ball rolling toward a greater appreciation of the Western theater. And since then, we've seen uh, Larry Daniels' book on the Army of the Cumberland. Uh, I was able to write something on the Army of the Ohio. There's a new book on the Union Army of the Tennessee. Uh, we're, we're finally we're seeing a, something of a shift. Uh, we've seen, I think, six biographies of Sherman uh, since that time. Uh, so, so scholars and, and the public are getting a little bit more aware of what's happening in the West. But is, is the process complete? Uh, is there now a balance of views between the two? It's much more balanced than it was, say, 30 years ago. Actually, you can trace it back a little bit farther than that. I mentioned the first book on the Confederate Army of Tennessee, which was Stanley Horn's book in 19, early 1940s. And, of course, Thomas Conley wrote the two-volume history of that army that was published in the late 1960s and the second volume in the early 1970s. And that, Conley's book, really in many ways marked the beginning, I think, of this. And we have gone beyond that to get a number of biographies of generals who were prominent in the West. We have gotten some fairly detailed histories of the Western battles, we have gotten, as you just mentioned, the books on the Union armies in the West, which for a long time was the really neglected facet of Civil War history. Uh, your book, by the way, is very good, as are the books by Larry and Steve Woodward. But we, we still need things like studies of logistics, transportation. Uh, I would like to see some more on the role of the Union Navy, uh, particularly its role in the last part of the war, after the capture of Vicksburg, things like the signal service, to match a lot of the detailed studies that we have of both armies in the Virginia theater. But it's a much more balanced view than it was. I yep. would argue we still have a little ways to go on it. I, I think you're right there. Um, Edward Hagerman's book on uh, logistics and the, the, the dawn of modern warfare, I've forgotten the exact title. Um, you, you, that, looking at the shelf, see if it's up here, that uh, uh, the American Civil War and the Origins of Modern Warfare uh, is, I think, an excellent book that really delves into the logistics, but it does focus on the Eastern theater when I think about it, and we don't have anything like that for the West. Um, we've got little bits here and there. Uh, a lot of the information is scattered through something like Connolly's book, which, of course, concentrates on the Confederate side, mm -hmm. but questions as to where 
did the Confederate armies in the West get their transportation, that is, their wagons? Where did they get their food? Where did they get their ammunition, their, the weapons they used, that sort of thing? Bits of that are in, particularly in Connolly's books on the Army of the Heartland in Autumn of Glory. And as I say, they're scattered here and there, but we could still use a lot more on that, maybe somebody to pull it all together. Right. Now, in contrast for the Eastern Theater, in uh, uh, in your book on the, the hypothetical Fourth Battle of Winchester, you refer to some hypothetical historical works that have not actually been written. I believe one was a, uh, a, a definitive history of Lee's mules. And right, was by, a, by a national park historian at Fredericksburg, as I recall. Yes, and then you had the, uh, the definitive listing of all the horses killed in the Army of Virginia in the Overland Campaign. Right. Uh, we we need something like that for the Western armies. We do. No, no one has quite yet gone to that level of detail in the East, but we're we're not far from it sometimes. And and you're right. We don't have anything like that to the West. Let me ask you about the West one in terms of hypotheticals. The art, the, the movement there, the Union armies, the, the strategic movements clearly are much more dramatic. Or there is much more movement and ultimately more decisive results than in the East. Could the war in the West have ended differently? Could it have? Um, it could have, but it would have taken some really major differences from what actually happened. Uh, I think, for example, Jefferson... I, I, I tend to think the Confederates lost the war rather than the other way around. And I think that if it had ended differently, it would have necessitated Jefferson Davis doing a lot of different things in different ways than he did, paying more attention to the war in the West, uh, not in terms of assigning troops or supplies or that sort of thing, but in terms of riding herd on some of the Confederate generals in the West, particularly on Leonidas Polk, the Episcopal bishop and longtime friend of Jefferson Davis's, whom he appointed to command the Confederate armies in the Mississippi Valley in August of 1861, and who held that command for about a month, during which time he managed to launch Confederate troops into Kentucky at a time when that state was trying to preserve a precarious neutrality between North and South. And I tend to think that if there was a turning point in the war, that was it because up till then the Confederates had been doing pretty well. And after that, Kentucky was pretty much under the control of the Union, and the Confederate cause just went downhill. But it would have taken a, a different attitude on the part of, of Jefferson Davis, I think, to have produced a different result in the West. Would, would there have been anything, you said without going into details of, of moving troops here and there, doing things strategically different. Um, it's, a, it's a question people often ask, what if uh, Davis had not replaced uh, Joseph Johnson in 1864 with, uh, with General Hood outside of Atlanta? The, the, there's a long-standing view that had Johnson stayed in command, he would have continued to delay Sherman, and Atlanta would not have fallen, Lincoln would not have gotten the popularity boost, and McClellan would have been elected president. Uh, do you see that scenario? No. Uh, I first place, I don't think Johnston would have held Atlanta. Uh, I think he believed that he would have held Atlanta. 
which is why he was so adamant in post-war years. And other people who looked at it saw the obvious fact that the Confederates had lost Atlanta after Johnston had been relieved from command, and they therefore concluded that had Johnston not been relieved from command, the Confederates would not have lost Atlanta. But I think they would have. I, I think Hood's efforts around Atlanta have been much underappreciated, that all things considered, he was did, did something of an amazing job holding Atlanta for as long as he did, given the situation he faced when he took command. I think that the army, that the Confederate army lost Atlanta about, oh, the first week of the Atlanta campaign when it lost its position up in northwestern Georgia. I mean, if you look at the terrain and the maps and the river courses, that once they were forced out of that mountain position in northwestern Georgia, it was pretty inevitable that they could not stay in north Georgia and that it, it, at that time they had basically lost Atlanta and lost the campaign. And I don't think that leaving Johnston in command would have made any difference, oh. except in the Confederates losing Atlanta perhaps two or three weeks sooner than they did. So without, uh, if you're going to give up the good terrain, there's no reason to think you're going to hold it on the bad terrain. Right. Well, that, that uh, certainly does make, make sense. We're going to take a short break now, have a commercial or two, and come back and find out more about what could have gone on differently in the Civil War. And our conversation here on Civil War Talk Radio with Richard McMurray. We'll be back in just a moment. 